So today, I, the message, we're in Exodus, and we're talking about the plague of flies. And I, um, so there's two, there's two introductions to this. So one is uh, this story that I'm about to tell you. So when I was a kid, we lived in um, Puxico, Missouri, and there were a lot of chicken farms all around us. And so we'd actually, a bunch of Amish families had moved in, exploring the idea of whether we could start a community there. And so we were living and working on this one chicken farm, and there were several others around. And these were egg farms. And so the, the, um, you know, the chickens would be brought in once they were actually laying, and they would all be put in their cages. And so our job was to actually to gather the eggs. That's what we were there for. And so we were there gathering eggs, and um, a bunch of our other families, other Amish families, had decided they wanted to come visit Grandpa and those of us that were living there at the time. There, I think there were two or three of, the, um, of my grandpa's children, so my aunts and uncles were there. And so we just, they were going to come and visit. So a whole bunch of people came to visit. It was too many to eat in a house, so we were going to eat outside under the shade tree in the summertime in Missouri, um, right next to a chicken farm. And so they spread this beautiful Amish meal out there. I mean, there was just, you know, there, was, there, there were potato, uh, mashed potatoes. There was some kind of a meat dish. There were noodles. There was some, several vegetables. There was some salad. There were several kinds of buns and bread. There were jellies of all types. There were, it, just, it was just a beautiful spread on the table, right? And then we were waiting for everyone to get there, and every time you look back at the table, instead of seeing the beautiful jelly and the beautiful buns and the beautiful stuff, it was just covered with flies because we were next to a chicken farm. And this is how thick the flies were. You could, and guess how I discovered this, you, you could clap your hands on top of a bowl of jelly and smash like dozens of flies between your hands. That's how bad the flies were, okay? So I... Every time I think of the plague of flies, I think of that meal, us trying to eat outside with just so many flies around there. It's a little more gross now when I think about it than it was when I was nine and 10 years old. Then it was kind of cool. Did you see that? I just clapped my hands and killed dozens of flies. That was awesome. <laughs> So that was my, that's my one intro. And then um, my second intro actually is, um, a couple years ago, the cousins made a video of the plagues. So Stacy made this with the, all Peter's cousins and stuff. So I think we're gonna take the lights down and we're gonna show this video. Now it came to pass that the children of Israel cried out to God because the Egyptians had them in bondage. And their cry came up to God and God remembered his promises to them. Moses was living as a shepherd in the land of Midian. And the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush. And the Lord said, Take off your shoes, because this is holy ground. I have seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry, so I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people out of Egypt. Moses did not think he could do that. The Lord said, I will be with you, Moses, and show Egypt all of my power. And Moses obeyed what the Lord commanded him and went to Egypt. He said to Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go. But Pharaoh said, No. 
So the Lord sent plagues on the land of Egypt. Moses lifted up his rod over the water in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and all the water was turned to blood throughout all the land of Egypt. The second plague the Lord sent was frogs. And the frogs came into the Egyptian houses, into their bedrooms, on the people, into their ovens, and into their kneading bowls. So frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Then Moses took his rod and struck the dust, and it became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And Moses returned to Pharaoh, but God hardened his heart, and he would not let God's people go. Then the Lord sent a fourth plague. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh and his servants and all the land of Egypt. Then the Lord sent a very severe pestilence on all the livestock of Egypt so that they died. With the sixth plague, the Lord caused boils to break out on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. Then the Lord sent thunder and hail on the land of Egypt, and hail struck all that was in the field, both man and beast, and every herb of the field, and broke every tree of the field. In the eighth plague, the Lord caused locusts to cover the land of Egypt. They ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. The ninth plague was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The Lord told the children of Israel to take a lamb, kill it, and put the blood on the doorposts of their houses. For those who obeyed, the Lord would pass over their house, and the tenth plague would not hurt them. Then they were to eat the lamb with unleavened bread. This was the first Passover meal. For those who did not obey, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt died, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of his servants. Finally, Pharaoh let God's people go. The children of Israel left Egypt, praising the Lord for his great power. So just so you know, every year when we go to Camp Grammy, some other production like that happens. So you just have to ask Stacy, where are they? And you can watch them. They're on YouTube. Um, <clears throat> so 
So what's fascinating about that is actually something we're going to uh, come across today as we read through Exodus. So my, I wanted to read now um, Ecclesiastes 10.1. That was a verse I didn't give you, Holly, but it's Ecclesiastes 10.1. <clears throat> In Ecclesiastes 10.1, it just simply says, Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. And so does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. And so uh, <clears throat> because we're talking about the plague of flies, I just was wanting to know, does the Bible talk about flies everywhere else? And so this is one of the few times when you really have the flies in position. And so you have the foul odor of the dead flies that he's talking about. Um, <clears throat> and I was thinking, you know, like, you have a thing of perfume, and you just need one dead fly in it to, like, make it feel kind of gross. You're like, am I really going to rub fly juice on myself to make myself smell good? Like, is this, this a, you know, just is gross. And so the, the concept of having flies everywhere is just a little much. And so... I understand why it would be a plague. We're going to read the actual plague of the flies. <clears throat> Starting in Exodus 8, verse 20. Exodus 8, verse 20, The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies. And also the ground on which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in, your, in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you. I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people, but let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, 
from his servants and from his people, not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. At this time also, neither would he let the people go. Actually, let's go ahead and also read um, into chapter 9. So Exodus 9, the first 12 verses, we'll read those as well. And so the, the phrase that I ended on, where it said in, that Pharaoh hardened his heart, this is something that I wanted us to notice today, is the, the, the hardening of his heart. There's a, in these, between the, the, the three plagues, I want to read three of the plagues today, flies, um, the livestock, and the boils, and there's a progression that happens with Pharaoh's heart in these three plagues that is it's interesting to consider and think about. So in Exodus 9, we'll continue reading now in verse 1 of Exodus 9, this is the the fifth plague of the livestock. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and, they, and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of it, of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. And then the next is the sixth plague of boils. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens and in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven, and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So several things that I noticed. One is that in, uh, after the flies, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. After the livestock, it says that Pharaoh's heart became hard. And after the boils, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so there is a, a, a bit of a, a progression that happens here. And you'll see that at, at various times in these 10 plagues, it will say that the Lord did it. Like the Lord foretold all of it, but a few times it says that the Lord hardened his heart. And part of it is explained when we get to the plague of the boils, I believe, is the, um, there is, or maybe it's a little bit, or no, not in boils, hail. When we get to the plague of hail, the seventh plague, it talks a little bit more about what God's purpose and what he's trying to do with this. But there is a progression here. And so if you remember a couple weeks ago, we read the, the Psalm 95 where it says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so there is a, there's a moment here when Pharaoh has an opportunity to soften his heart or harden his heart. And so I just want to keep it on that level and say, Pharaoh had an opportunity, he hardened his heart. And so then once that had started, it was like the next time the opportunity came along, his heart just automatically hardened itself. And at that point, he was transgressing to the level that God looks at him and says, I'm going to harden your heart 
because I'm trying to do something else here. If you're not going to obey me, I have something else I'm going to do here. And so this is a, this is a good uh, thought for us to keep in mind is that we want to keep our heart toward God soft. We don't want to allow our heart toward God to become hardened. And so there's a, there is a definite um, opportunity for each of us. Uh, there are times when God will give us a, a moment to speak to us, and then we have an opportunity to listen, or we can wait and suffer the consequences. <clears throat> I have a story about that. I don't know if I'll get to it today or not, but I... Um, I wanted to continue here. We have the, the, the Pharaoh hardening his heart. The heart of Pharaoh becomes hard. The Lord hardens his heart. Well, then we come. There, there's a little sidebar in here where in, during the time of the flies, when the flies are buzzing around, Pharaoh says, look, this is really bad. Just go worship your God. Just, but just do it here. And so this is a fascinating moment because Moses immediately says, no, if we do it here, your zealous Egyptians are going to kill us because the thing that we're going to offer up to God is considered an abomination to them. And so if you remember back in Genesis, when Joseph is talking to his brothers and he says that a, a shepherd is considered an abomination to the Egyptians, so there's something about either the sheep, or because they have livestock, they have sheep, but one of these things is considered by the Egyptians to be unclean. And so they don't want, so, so Moses is literally saying, I'm going to not do, if we do it here, we're going to be in trouble. And so I'm reminded of several things. The early church um, had, a, had a bit of a problem on its hand because they would meet and in secret, they would have communion. And so word went out that they were cannibals because they, they said that they were eating the blood or drinking the blood and eating the flesh of Jesus. Because in communion, that's Jesus, as often as you do this in remembrance of me, and it, there was this communion moment where you're commemorating and remembering the blood and body of Christ. And so it became known a little bit as a blood cult as a, and all of this. And, he, and, and so Moses literally says, don't let me do, don't do this while I am, uh, we don't want to do this here in the middle of all the Egyptians. They're going to be zealous for this. They will not understand. And so I thought about that a little bit. There's some wisdom in this. Um, you know, we, we've even discussed, like, when we make these videos, we put them up on YouTube, and, and one time Stacy got this comment on there where someone's like, oh, these poor children being indoctrinated in a blood cult. Like, that's what, that's what the, the YouTube video, and I'm like, you know, it is true that much of my Christianity hinges on and depends upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And if you don't understand that and you don't know what that means, that could be a real push away from God for you. You need someone who can explain this. And so I, was, I kept thinking about that comment and thinking that person that left the comment either went through difficult times at the hands of Christianity and is now looking for ways to hurt Christians because Christians hurt them, or they're from some other complete place and it's just the spirit in them reacting against the spirit in the word of God. And so there's, it's good for us to be aware of that. And this is, to me, it's, the, it's, the, um, it's a certain level of self-awareness to know that when I am practicing my faith, how does that appear to those on the outside? And while I do not want to 
fall to the fear of man, there are some things that we do that we have to be very cautious and careful about purely because of how it can appear and people can be like, what in the world are you doing? And it can cause a problem. And so there are some things that are sacred to God and sacred to his word and sacred that, that are sacred. And so I think of the early church gathering, as it were, in secret to have communion. And yet the people on the outside are going, oh, there's something going on in there. And yet they persisted. And, and that, that accusation actually was raised up in several different places, several different times where people are like, there's something wacky going on over there. They say that they're eating the body of Christ and they're drinking the blood of Christ. And this is, and, and you know, if, if you told me that there's a group of people down here in, in Lakewood and they meet together and they eat the blood of their leader and they, or drink the blood of their leader and eat the flesh of their leader, I would tell you, I think we need to send the police in. There's something wrong over there. And yet, this is what was happening, and so there's, a, there's an understanding that had to be cultivated and something. And so what Moses is saying is, look, if we just slaughter the animals that we're going to slaughter and we do it the way that we're going to do it, um, there's going to be an outcry. The Egyptian version of PETA is going to show up, and it's just going to be a bad day, right? Uh, and so I just thought that was a fascinating little bit where Pharaoh, Moses is like, no, Pharaoh, we can't do it here. We need to go in the wilderness before God to do it. We don't want to be bringing our sacred worship into the middle of your Egyptian paganism. Uh, and so this is something to think about, is sometimes there are, there are pieces of our Christian worship that may not be for the public square, and that they might be for our private lives. So this is just, I'm, I'm just throwing that out there because it could cause some discussion and some thought to think through what is, what of my faith is for the public eye and what of my faith is for the eyes of God alone? And, to, and if you think of what Jesus said about not throwing your pearls before swine, this is what Moses is kind of saying. I, mm, if I stay here and we do the sacrifices here, it's going to cause problems and I don't want to do that. So Pharaoh was like, okay, okay, you can go. But then he, of course he changes his heart. So that's, that was a, a little sidebar that I thought was, in, was fascinating. The whole, the idea that the, the abomination of the Egyptians becomes the sacrifice and the offering of the Hebrews. And just as a, as a side note, before I go on to the next point here, um, there are times when a believer, because of his faith in God, will say, I will not do this. I will abstain from this. And a pagan on the outside says, what, are you more holy than me? What, what are you trying to do by not, there's, there's nothing wrong with this. And the believer says, I, I'm not saying that you can't do this. I'm not saying that you can't do whatever you want. Uh, you will answer to God for yourself. But I am saying this is wrong and I cannot do this thing. And, and there is a, a total misunderstanding because to them it feels, and so it's, it feels like a wrong sacrifice. So anyway, this is, this is not the main point of my message this morning. This is just a sidebar as we go through, but it's a concept and a thought that I, that I think it, it, does us, it, it behooves us to consider what part of our faith, like I don't know if you've ever um, stepped outside of a Christian group and listened to their Christianese and the words that they use and how they speak to each other, and to each other, they, it sounds so holy and it sounds so they are so used to it. But if you're not from there, it can sound really bizarre. And so 
you have to be aware of what does your language convey and communicate. That's what, part of what I take out of that. All right, now moving on. Uh, in verse 23 of chapter 8, God is speaking through Moses, and he says, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign shall be. I'm going to make a difference. And then he says it again over in chapter 9, verse 4, and again in chapter 9, verse 26, he says this, where he says, I will make a difference between your people and my people. So God is speaking to the Egyptians, and he says, I'm going to make a difference between you and to them. Okay, now we have a truth in Scripture that says that God makes it rain on the evil and on the good. He makes the sun shine on the evil and on the good. But here we have something, um, and because uh, chapter 9 talks about hail, and I was thinking about rain and hail and how they're similar, like there is the normal sort of rain that God just sends out on his people. Um, later in Deuteronomy, we find this idea that we could actually pray for rain and that it might be the lack of repentance of the people of God that could withhold rain from a land. So the reason I'm bringing that in here is there is a, there is a sort of a truth that we have, or, or a fact, I should say, just a, a, a principle of the earth, that there is a certain amount of brokenness. So think of death, disease, um, just the, the, the deterioration of our bodies, things like that. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, this impacts you. Everyone is under the same law that happened when Adam and Eve sinned. We are all dealing with the same brokenness and corruption. However, on top of that, there is an opportunity for blessing or a curse. And this is where God makes a difference between his people and those who are rejecting him. There is a difference made. So I might be walking in the same exact problems of the world that my neighbor and my next door neighbor and the next guy down are all in the same. We're dealing with the same, the weather, the temperatures, the, just the, the fact that our cars need to be taken care of because they deteriorate. All, we have all of these same things. However, I can be walking in the middle of those with a blessing from God because I am his and I belong to him. And they might be walking in the same circumstances with this distance from God and feeling the effects of the curse in a different way because redemption isn't happening for them at all. In fact, they might actually disobey the very laws of God that are put there to protect them and as a result have to reap the curse of disobeying God. And so we can live right next door to each other and one of us can be walking in blessing, one of us can be walking in curse, in the cursing. And so this is an important thing to keep in mind is that God does make a difference. But where does he make the difference and why does he make the difference? This is, it, it's when he says, I will make a difference between your people and my people. This is a bit of a foreshadowing of something that happens over in Ezekiel 9, where God is, is, is giving the example uh, where uh, Ezekiel sees the Basically, there's a, like a, a special forces from heaven that's there to take out all the people, the pagan worshipers that are in Jerusalem and in the temple. And these special forces are being sent out to, to go kill everyone. But before they go out, he sends out the scribe to mark in the forehead 
every one of the people that are mourning because of the sin and the wickedness of his people. And so he sets apart a certain amount of people and he says to the killers, he says, do not touch these. And so then the guy comes back and says, okay, I've marked everyone and then they go out to kill. And so there's a, there's a sense in this, where there's a spiritual sense, a, a spiritual f- feeling in Ezekiel 9 that you see this. Well, then you get to Revelation and you see again where God marks a number of people in their foreheads and you see this throughout scripture, the idea of being set apart. And so God sets apart some people for himself and God brings judgment on other people. And so this is, a, this is an important concept for our Christianity is to understand, uh, and I think in terms of, you know, there are times when I, I've overheard conversations or been involved with conversations or I've just heard flat out statements being made of people who are afraid of the mark of the beast. And this was especially true um, when in the culture I grew up in, every time something came along, you know, when Apple came out, um, the computers, I mean, the thing that was very clearly spoken among, among all the Amish was the fact that there's this guy who's invented this computer and you can buy one for $666.66. Because that's what Steve Jobs did with that first computer. It didn't sell because it was too expensive. He had to mark it down to 200 and something. But he priced it at 66666. And he had the, what was his logo? The apple with a bite taken out of it. Like, he was definitely poking at Christians and believers. Like, he really was. There, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he, the fingerprints are there, right? And so, when someone is afraid of the mark of the beast, there are two things going on here. One is... The eyes are not on Jesus. The eyes are on the beast, the enemy of God. There's a misunderstanding of the power of God and his ability to save his people and to rescue his people. So what we see here is that the the children of Israel that were living over in the land of Goshen, when the flies came through, when the the plagues, the livestock was dying, when the boils came through, and it says that God says he's going to make a difference, If the children of Israel were listening, if the Hebrews were listening, they could have heard the pronouncements that Moses brought down and just ignored the fact that God said, I'm going to make a difference. And they could have said, we're we're all so doomed. We're just in so much trouble. And so I think this is especially good for us to realize now we're in a culture where there is no one representative of all the people. You cannot come to the United States and say, this person right here represents all all the people groups of all the United States of America. You have so many people groups, and some of them have clear leadership and representation, others do not. But before the throne of God in heaven, there is something, and we'll get to it, we saw it at the end of the little video there, when, when the death angel comes through and he's looking for something very specific, he's looking for the blood on the doorposts. There is a principle in the kingdom that those that belong to him are known by the king. And when the king knows you, he protects you. And so you might go through the ravages of living in a sin-cursed world. You might have to deal with the, the, the ravages of disease. You might have to deal with all of that stuff. But it's different for the believer because we have the king who has put his mark on us and he's protecting us and he's conducting us through this into his glorious kingdom. He has a destination in line for us. 
So in the same way that the children of Israel had the destination of the land of Israel, the land of the Canaan, that was their destination, they could put their trust in him and they could rest in the fact. In fact, if they had 100% believed that God would take them there, if they had rested in God, very soon after these plagues, you know, just a matter of weeks, they would have been in the land of Canaan, possessing the land. But because they doubted and because they were afraid, they ended up taking 40 years before they could even end up in the land of Israel, or in the, in the land of Canaan. And so uh, this is just a, it's a, it's a, a warning for us and an understanding and a promise for us that God knows how to make a difference between the people whose hearts and eyes are turned toward him and the people whose hearts and eyes are opposed to him or turned away from him. And so the, the, the concern is not to try to locate and figure out what is the next plague going to be? Is it going to be flies? Is it going to be what? The concern is, Turn your heart and your eyes to Jesus. The concern is not to exactly identify who the, you know, the man of sin, the 666, who this is. We don't have to could totally figure this out. We don't have to figure out exactly what the mark of the beast is. We don't have to do that because when we're trying to do that, our eyes are turning away from Jesus and we're looking at man. We're looking at the, the things that are happening in the world and we're looking any place except to Jesus. And the, the heart of the believer needs to be firmly toward Jesus, to know him and to be known by him because God is making a difference even now. And so I can be in the church. I can be well-versed in theology. I can know scripture and spout it off. I can be at all kinds of events and do all kinds of stuff. But if my heart is turned away from God, and I'm instead looking out here. It doesn't matter what the reason is that I'm looking away. If I'm looking away, this is not where I'm supposed to be. My heart is supposed to be facing Jesus toward him. Because God makes a difference between his people and those who reject him. I want to look at Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, the very last verse, I'm going to read that first and then we'll go back to the beginning. So Psalm chapter 1, verse 6, it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So that's the end of the verse, the conclusion. So let's look at the beginning of this and see where we start. So it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the, ju in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And so our goal as believers is to do as the psalmist says, to, to delight in the law of the Lord, to meditate on it day and night. 
And so when I think of the difference that is being made in Egypt with the plagues, we might say, well, that's, that's a one-time sort of thing. It might be a one-time event that there's that many flies in one country. And, and I was thinking about it too this week. It's like, wouldn't it have been handy if the next plague would have been the frogs? Like, <laughs> Stacy was feeding our pet frog flies. She was running around the house with a little net and like capturing them and then taking them in, dropping them in, and then everyone watches and the frog jumps over and eats the next fly. And so I was thinking, you know, God could have done that, but he didn't. He didn't follow the natural order of plagues. Um, he did a supernatural order of plagues. And, and so when you consider the plagues, there are some where it clearly says at the end of them that God, uh, Pharaoh asked Moses to pray, Moses prayed, and God removed them. And there's others like the lice. It doesn't even mention what happened to them. It doesn't say they went away. It just leaves it there. Um, and there's several times when it's like that, where it just doesn't say that God took it all away and made it all better. It just, like the frogs, like Bob pointed out last week, the frogs were lying around in heaps, stinking, and they didn't get removed entirely. So here we have, here we have the, each of these plagues coming along, and now we have a series where it literally says, except for the land of Goshen, not my people. And so the creator of the universe is saying, look what I can do, Pharaoh. And not only people of Egypt, not only am I able to do this to you, but look how I can protect my people. In fact, the next uh, plague, we see when the hail is coming, we see that it said that anybody that, that heard it and believed was able to move their animals or whatever, out, their servants out of, the, out of harm's way inside and was protected. But those who didn't believe the word of God to Pharaoh didn't do that. And so there's already now a shift happening where people are being given an opportunity to actually respond to God and to run and protect themselves. So I think of the, the Psalm where it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. That's what we're talking about. We God makes a difference between the pagan who hates him and hates the people of God, and he makes a difference between that person and man and the person that is crying out to him and whose heart is turned toward him. And so, yes, I might be asked at some point in my existence to die for my faith, to suffer for my faith. That's possible. But what we have seen throughout history is that God protects his people all the way through the valley of the shadow. And he walks with his people all the way through the valley of the shadow. And that suddenly all the broken things in the world are being illumined by the light of eternity. And it's different than walking through it in hopelessness. And so here we have a picture of God very specifically saying, here's the plague. You earned it, Pharaoh. Take it, but not my people. I'm not going to do it to my people. I'm going to protect my people. God is able to make a difference, to show that difference. Now, I wanted to just go back for a moment to that very first verse I read, Ecclesiastes 10.1, where it says, Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment and cause it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly to one respected for wisdom and honor. And so I was thinking about that. You know, you know people that you know are going to be foolish no matter what. You know people who are going to be goofy. You know people that are really going to be wicked no matter what. But when you find someone 
who has had a reputation of righteousness, a reputation of wisdom, a reputation uh, of res he's respected. And then one of these things shows up and you're like, oh, that was kind of inappropriate. Like, why did he say that? Why did he do that? And so when I read this verse for myself, for whatever reason, this, this verse messes with my identity. Like this takes me back to me, uh, the little kid who threw the hay down for the goat. I, I, you remember that story I told it some months ago about how uh, this was part of my identity issues that I had because we borrowed a goat and my sister was supposed to milk the goat, but she wasn't very fast. I was supposed to feed the goat and take care of the goat. And so I'm supposed to somehow get this goat to hold still while she milks the goat. And so we put grain down and she starts milking while she's beginning milker, so it's very slow. And so long before she's finished, the goat runs out of feed. And so I'm eight years old, I think, at the time. And so I'm like, what am I going to do? My responsibility is to hold the goat. I don't know how to hold a goat. The goat's going to step in the milk. I don't know what to do. Hay. There's some hay right there. I grab a pile of hay and I throw it down in front of the goat. Now, you imagine if you pick up a bunch of hay, you throw it down in front of a goat. Is the goat going to be like, ah, oh, hay, that's nice. No, the goat jumped, put a foot in the bucket, everything that I didn't want to happen. And somehow I got a third person view of myself that became like a freeze frame in my mind of my identity. And it showed this little Amish boy kind of in this position, grabbing hay going like that. And it was just, it was not a um, healthy self image. It was <laughs> and so, so for me, for whatever reason, every time I read this verse in Ecclesiastes 10 to 1, if you, you know, someone who is a little folly to someone who's respected for wisdom and honor, you know, I'm like, well, I'm supposed to be a cool kid. I'm supposed to be a proper Amish kid that knows how to take care of animals and stuff. But remember the goat? Remember the goat story? Yeah, I do remember that. A little, like a, like a fly in a perfume, perfumer's ointment. That's just a little folly right there. And so this would you know, I had to deal with it. Literally, I had to pray through that thing. But it's still, now it's funny because I think of me and the goat boy and all of this. But at the time, it, it wasn't funny. It was, it, it scarred me. Who was there? Me, my sister, and a goat. But the accuser was able to use that image and say, hey, remember that? So every time I'd start thinking, maybe I've got it. Maybe I've, I am cool stuff. Maybe I have it figured out. Remember you and the goat? <laughs> yes, I do, I do actually. And so, so identity can be wrapped up in this. And so with this idea of a little folly, I'm thinking of, you know, the flies that came into Egypt were so obvious and so big and so everywhere. But when I go to bed at night and we turn off the light and there's a big old fat fly buzzing around in the window, do I just be like, ah, it's no big deal and go to sleep? Oh, no, I don't. I get up and I chase that fly until it's dead. And what's really annoying is about the time one is dead, then the next one pokes his head out from behind a curtain somewhere and says, and I'm off chasing another flight. I mean, Stacy can verify this. And so like, I can be chasing flies for a while. I don't like flies. She's like, if you go turn on the living room light and open all the doors in, in between, the fly will fly out there and then you can turn off the light and come back in here. I'm like, mm, the fly must die, you know? And so, so, so I'm thinking about that. Like one fly can buzz and be annoying. And so if I'm, and one fly in ointment, that is annoying. One little bit of folly in my life. So what is folly? Well, folly is literally looking to anyone besides the creator and my God for anything. 
So if I am putting anybody in front of God, anything in front of God, including my own wisdom, including my own ideas, if I'm doing anything before God, I am going to be walking in folly. So, you know, according to Psalm 1, if, I'm, if I am walking in the counsel of the ungodly, that's folly. If I'm sitting in the seat of the scornful, that would be folly. And so I don't want any of this. I want to be walking in the counsel of the godly. I want to fully be meditating and thinking about Scripture and turning to God. And so because of that, when I read Ecclesiastes 1, and that little bit of challenge to my identity comes in, because I'm thinking, you know what? It only takes one fly. It only takes one bit of folly. And I'm messed up. And it's true. But then I think of my own faith walk, and I think of Abraham and the others and how they wavered their way into the kingdom and yet God honored them. And there is something here. So when I see the flies and the plagues that we just read about today and I think about this, the fact that God makes a difference and the difference isn't made because of my performance. The difference isn't made because of my gifts and talents. The difference isn't made because of my effectiveness. The difference is simply made for the believer because we belong to Jesus. We have cried out to him for mercy. And in the brokenness of the world, as everything seems to be falling apart around us, in the middle of that, our hearts are turned toward God. And so that verse where it says, today, if you'll hear his voice, that's what he keeps saying throughout the universe, throughout the whole existence of time is the echo goes out. Today, today, if you will hear the voice of the creator, today, if you will hear my voice and not harden your hearts, as in the, in the provocation in the wilderness, today, that's what we're looking, that's what we're after, is that heart toward God today. And so if I suddenly find a fly in my ointment, if I'm creating more moments like the goat boy's screenshot, you know, if I'm doing any of those things, I can turn for mercy to the Creator. And I keep my heart toward Him. If I hear of fearful things out here, I turn toward my Creator. If I'm being told that this is destroying the church over here, I turn to my Creator and I say, what do you want, Lord? Where am I supposed to walk? And maybe I'll be like Moses and be sent straight to the heart of the enemy to give a message. Maybe I'll just be that one you know, the Hebrew people that are just serving the Lord with gladness. I don't know what my part is to play in eternity, but there is a king who knows, and my heart needs to be toward him, wants to be toward him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love to us. Thank you that you do not leave us just in totally ensnared in our own sin. And I just think of the Egyptians being covered with flies, everything flies everywhere. And yet you made a difference for your people that they were not covered in flies. And it was because you loved your people. And so today we want to be your people. We want to be purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. We want to walk in obedience to you. We are yours. Father, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us and help us to walk in that difference that you make. For we don't have to participate in all the cursing, but that in the middle of the brokenness, we can sense your blessing and your hand of protection. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.